As is our practice here, if you would please stand with me for the reading of the word. We're reading from Mark 12, starting with verse 13. They sent some of the Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're genuine and you don't worry about what people think. You don't show favoritism, but teach God's way as it really is. Does the law allow people to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay taxes or not? Since Jesus recognized their deceit, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a coin, show it to me. And they brought one. He said to them, whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's, they replied. Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God what belongs to God. His reply left them overcome with wonder. The word of God. You may be seated. Should we pay taxes or not? This seems a very relevant question to me on April 2nd. And if you would indulge me with a little participation this morning, I would like to see how many of you have already filed your taxes for 2021. Are there some brave people out there? I would like to be like you when I grow up. <laughs> how many of you are hoping to still make it through. Now, it's normally April, April 15, but this year, April 15 is Good Friday, and I think that just didn't go well together. So they've given us till April 18. How many of you are going to squeeze through till then? You're going to raise your hand. Okay, some of you, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. Okay. How many of you, like me, who finally, yesterday, I said, okay, I'm going to have to do this again. How many of you are planning to file an extension? Okay, good, I have friends. <laughs> Thank you so much, I have friends. Now I could ask you, how many of you just don't believe in paying taxes? But you can tell me afterwards, that's, that's okay. This was the question though that Jesus was asked, should we pay taxes or not? But the people that came to ask Jesus this question were not really interested in his response. You see, it's a trap. The day before was a Monday, and if you missed Pastor Devo's sermon from last Sabbath, please, it would be well worth your time to go back and listen to it. Uh, Pastor Devo talked about how Jesus closed the temple on that Monday, and it was because the religious leaders had rejected an, a vision that God had for inclusion, and they had made the temple exclusive. And so Jesus shut down the temple on Monday, and on Tuesday, they were waiting for him. And they had a very relevant question for him. The first question was, by what authority did you do what you did yesterday? If I was a religious leader of the day, I would ask him too, hey, what right do you have to come in here and do everything you did yesterday? I'd probably have arrest warrants after him already. But that was their first question. But Jesus very cleverly sidesteps the question by asking them a question. Um, and Jesus wins that round of controversy. Next, Jesus tells a story. It's about a landowner who goes away and has a vineyard and there's tenants and then the landowner sends servants to go get the fruit from the vineyard but the tenants mistreat the servants and they kill the servants and eventually the landowner sends his son and, and thinks, 
maybe if, if I send my son, they'll respect him, but instead they say, oh, this is the heir. We're gonna get rid of him and then we will own the vineyard. And Mark 12, verse 12 says, they wanted to arrest Jesus because they knew that he had told the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Jesus' parable was not so subtle this time. They knew it was about them. And, and so now they have another question for Jesus. And they send strange bedfellows. They send the Pharisees with the Herodians. Now these are two different religious groups of the time, both leaders in the Sanhedrin. But normally the Pharisees and the Herodians would be debating each other in the Sanhedrin. They both wanted political, religious independence for the Jewish people. But the Herodians were convinced the Messiah would come through the line of Herod. And the Pharisees were convinced, no, the Messiah will come from the son of David. So the Herodians were more tied in with the Roman Empire, as it were. The Pharisees resisted and resented what was called the poll tax. Now this was a tax that people living in Judea had to pay to the Romans that started when Jesus was about nine or 10 years old in 6 BCE. And this tax was not based on your income. Whatever money you made, it was a headcount tax. So every adult had to pay a certain amount no matter how much money they made. And it was controversial. It was a fixed amount. We have some experience of this in our own country, in the United States. After the right to vote was extended to people, uh, men of all races, in 1870, several states enacted poll taxes to restrict voting rights again, this time based on income. You had to bring your receipt. This is pay, pay your poll tax by the end of January. You had to bring your receipt with you to vote, that you had paid the poll tax, whatever your income. But some states had grandfather clauses, so if your father or if your grandfather had voted before the Civil War, i.e. if they were white, then you could vote without paying the poll tax. The last use of a poll tax was in Mississippi for state elections and was declared unconstitu unconstitutional just 56 years ago. That's not that long ago. We're familiar with poll taxes in this country, and the poll tax in Judea was very controversial. The zealots refused to pay the poll tax. In fact, the movement of the zealots, a violent movement against Rome, many believe started when that poll tax was announced when Jesus was nine or 10. Uh, a man named Judas of Galilee, in response to the census that was to determine the poll tax for the head count, started violent uh, resistance and revolts against Rome. It didn't go well for Judas of Galilee. The Herodians, on the other hand, supported the poll tax. They chose to overlook the faults of Herod the Great and his son. After all, Herod the Great had built this beautiful temple. He was a Jew. They could overlook the fact that he killed his own relatives that because they were his opponents or that he was appointed by Rome. He cared about the Jewish people and the cause of God building the temple. Never mind that his son cared more about showing off the women in his life than standing for justice. Because Herod supported the temple, the Herodians were ready to support Herod and his descendants and to believe that Herod, can you imagine Herod or one of his descendants would be the Messiah? The Pharisees did not think so. 
but they also thought it was wise not to upset the Romans. They didn't want any violent uprisings during Passover. They did not want to see Herod's temple destroyed, even though they didn't like Herod so much. They saw Jesus and his good news of a new kingdom as a threat to the very future of the Jewish people. If Jesus said no, don't pay taxes, they could have him arrested. If he said yes, do pay taxes, he would alienate the crowd, which again would make it easier to have him arrested. Many of the people in the crowd that day would have had family members or friends that would have died in those zealot revolts or zealot riots. Just, just imagine with me for a moment the situation in Ukraine and if, as in Judea, the Romans came and they were now ruling and Russia was now ruling and you had friends and relatives that had died fighting and now you're going to say, yeah, go pay them taxes? He would have alienated the crowd. So the Pharisees and the Herodians come with this trap to Jesus and they start with flattery. They say, you know, we, we know you're genuine and you don't care what other people think. You don't butter people up. You don't sugarcoat the truth. Now, this is very ironic because that's exactly what they're doing with Jesus right now. They're buttering him up by saying this. And then they ask their question, should we pay taxes? Now, this is not a curiosity question. This is a courtroom question designed to corner Jesus and ensnare him. I've been reading uh, for parenting a book series called Positive Discipline, and I highly recommend it. It's by psychologist Jane Nelson, and she advocates for the importance of curiosity questions. What are some examples of a curiosity question you could ask your, your child or someone in your life? A curiosity question. Here are some examples. How do you feel about what happened? No agenda. Are you really curious about what they would say about that situation? How do you feel about what happened? What were you trying to do? How do you think we could solve this together? Now, uh, Dr. Nelson recommends not to use curiosity questions when you're upset because they'll feel like courtroom questions, okay? Wait till you're, you're calm, the other person is, is calm. But then ask questions that you really are wanting to know their response, not questions where you're trying to accuse someone or blame someone for what happened. But this, these are not curiosity questions. This, this is a courtroom question, and Jesus responds with, why are you testing me? Why am I on trial in this moment? And then Jesus does something brilliant. Instead of getting sucked into the argument about taxes, he asks them a question. He makes a request. He says, bring me a coin. Show me. The coin used to pay the poll tax was about the size of our dime, a small little coin, and it was most likely a silver Tiberian denarius with a human face on it. Now, Jews did not make graven images. There was some debate about whether or not it would be okay to picture an animal or a plant, but human faces like this one were definitely off limits. Some Jews felt so strongly about this that they would not carry this coin. They would carry their own Jewish coins that did not have portrayals of human faces on it. This coin was considered an idol. And as Jesus said, give me a coin, he shows that he does not have one. And he's, always, he's already won part of the crowd over with that request. So 
Jesus has discredited his opponents by showing that they are willing to bring an idol into the temple. Show me a coin. So sheepishly, a little embarrassed, one of them puts their hand in their pocket and pulls out a denarius. And then Jesus asks another question. Whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's, they say. You can buy a Tiberian uh, denarius today on eBay from anywhere from $300 to $3,000. I'm not sure the difference, perhaps the condition of the coin. Um, but you can, you can buy one. On the one side, there's an image of the Roman emperor, Tiberius Caesar, with the inscription, August, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side, you'll see a female holding a spear with an, uh, um, and an olive branch with the words high priest, most likely Tiberius' mother. So the coin, in that little piece of silver, it claimed that Tiberius is both the son of God on the one hand and high priest on the other side. The supreme political and religious leader of the world. And then Jesus makes a statement that has been wondered about and debated since the day he made it. And he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. Now some people have used the statement of Jesus as a treaty for the separation of church and state. Let's keep Caesar in his realm and let's keep God in God's realm. <laughs> Seventh-day Adventists have been strong proponents for the separation of church and state and the freedom of conscience. There was an interesting survey that Pew Research Center did in March of 2021. And in that survey, 54% of Americans feel the federal government um, should enforce the separation of church and state. 19% are opposed to the government enforcing the separation of church and state, and 27% either don't know or would rather not say. But of any group, as I was looking at the results of the survey, of any group surveyed of any particular racial background or church or religious background, white evangelical Christians were most likely to say the following. Public school teachers should be allowed to lead Christian prayers, 58%. The federal government should declare the United States a Christian country, 35%. The government should stop enforcing the separation of church and state, 34%. Now this prevalence among white evangelicals uh, to use political means to establish religious gain is concerning. However, Using Jesus' words, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, here as a treatise for the separation of church and state would be reading co contemporary concepts back into what Jesus was saying. Jesus is not making a point about the separation of church and state, as valuable as I feel that is. People here have used Jesus' words, pay to Caesar or give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God's what's God's. People have used these words as arguing for the importance of paying taxes or the importance of obeying the government. But even these interpretations are less solid as we may think. In Henry David Thoreau's work, Civil Disobedience from 1849, he argues the following. Jesus means, 
If you use money which has the image of Caesar on it, and which he has made current and valuable, that is, if you are men of the state, if you have that coin in your pocket, and you gladly enjoy the advantages of Caesar's government, then pay him back some of his own when he demands it. Render, therefore, to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's, leaving them, i.e., the Herodians and the Pharisees, no wiser than before as to which was which, for they did not wish to know. Mahatma Gandhi. 1930, wrote these words in response to this passage. He, referring to Jesus, said with withering scorn, how can you who traffic in Caesar's coins and thus receive what to you are benefits of Caesar's rule refuse to pay taxes? Jesus' whole preaching and practice point unmistakably to non-cooperation, which necessarily includes non-payment of taxes. What was Gandhi's take on this passage? In 1993, in a hearing at the House of Representatives of, quote, taxpayers who fail to file federal income tax returns, one Mennonite pastor said this, we are war tax resistors because we have discovered some doubt as to what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God and have decided to give the benefit of the doubt to God. Wow. Jesus' response is very clever. Give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. It's ambiguous. What does belong to Caesar after all, Jesus? It's ambiguous. 200 years earlier, before Jesus makes this statement, one of the slogans of the Maccabean um, revolt against the Syrians was this. One of their slogans was this. Pay back the Gentiles what they deserve and obey the commands of the law. That's in 1 Maccabees 2.68. Pay back the Gentiles what they deserve and obey the commands of the law. Now, the first part of Jesus' statement could be alluding to this, as in, pay the Gentiles back in their own coin or... Let Caesar have his idols, or give back to Caesar these worthless pieces of metal that he claims, or in the words of one commentator, send this filthy stuff back where it came from. It's subversive of Jesus. But no one could use it to charge Jesus with sedition, could they? So. If these words are not really about church-state separation, and they're not really about the importance of paying taxes, what is Jesus doing with these words, and how should we apply them as followers of Jesus today? Let's step back and look at a picture again of this moment in the temple. Many artists have tried to capture the moment. Here's one from the 1700s. Jesus pointing up, pointing at the coin. One from the 1800s here, again, looking at the coin, surrounded by his opponents. Um, from the 1900s, different take on this moment. There's one from the 1500s, a painter that has two paintings um, that I like. This one, the first one, it looks like Jesus is seeing right into his opponent's intentions and turning to take the coin. Um, and there's this interplay between Jesus and them. And this one, I like the emotion. It's like Jesus is annoyed with them or upset with them or angry with them. And just, hey, give to God what is God's. He doesn't even touch the coin. Each picture that we've seen here today in the artist includes Jesus 
a coin, and his opponents. The very presence of the coin reminds us that God is a God of freedom and not force. How is that? The Son of God, the true high priest, asks for a coin that contains the image of a ruler claiming to be the Son of God and the high priest. That very existence, the very fact that someone can claim on a coin to be the Son of God, to be the high priest, reminds us that God is God of freedom and not force. How is that? God could easily take out the Caesars of the world, couldn't God? God could easily take out the Caesars of the world, but instead, he comes as, God comes as a baby, born, threatened by the Herods of the world, a baby, the true son of God. The true high priest comes to the temple, not in glory, but as a 12-year-old boy asking questions. Every week here at La Sierra, we close our service with uh, the Lord's Prayer. And part of that prayer we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, every time we pray that prayer, we are affirming that God's will is not being done on earth right now. Many times you'll hear Christians say, whatever happened, oh, it's God's will. This happened, it's God's will. This happened, it's God's will. Okay, I understand in a broad sense that God is in charge of everything and God is allowing everything, but friends, every little thing that's happening is not what God wants. We're praying that prayer. We're praying, your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Jesus asked for that. That means it's not happening right now. There are Caesars in this world that are doing harmful and destructive things, and God's freedom is allowing this to happen. God does not force God's will. Yes, Rome will fall, but other coins will take their place. We should be careful around any person or organization that acts like they are without fault. Another point here. The, the Herodians were so convinced that Herod would be their Messiah that they were able to ignore all of these other faults of the way that Herod was not following God or God's will or God's way. We should be very careful of any person or organization that acts like they are without fault, that wants to be worshipped, that has gathered a cult of followers around themselves. We all need to be careful that our allegiance, as Jesus said, give to God what is God's. We all have to be very careful that our allegiance to Caesar or Herod or to our own self-interest does not supplant our allegiance to God. In the words of the previous story, the landowner sent the messengers, and finally the tenants would kill the son of that very landowner. Why? Because they wanted to take over the vineyard for themselves. They want to establish their own kingdom. They wanted to be the Caesar or the Herod. They wanted to have that for themselves. We have to be very careful of supporting Caesars, Herods, or making ourselves the Caesar or the Herod and replacing what belongs to God. So, Jesus' question, whose image and whose inscription is this on this coin? Well, immediately they say Caesars, but here's the irony, friends, Caesar too is an image bearer. 
Genesis 1 verse 27 says, God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. This applies to all human beings, regardless of ethnic background, gender, ability, or susceptibility. Caesar too is an image bearer. Caesar too is made in God's image. And the religious leaders only see Caesar. However distorted, God's image in every human being is detectable, friends. Instead of putting up monuments, the God of Genesis leaves living, breathing representatives to take care of God's world. Genesis 1.26 says, then God said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on earth. You and I are made in the image of God. Caesar was made in the image of God. And there is a sense in which we all are Caesars or kings of our own little spheres. Now, most of us don't mint money, but you and I have bodies, relationships, responsibilities that only you and I can care for. I've appreciated Cloud and Townsend with their Boundaries book series. This was one of the first books in the series. Um, boundaries, when to say yes, how to say no, to take control of your life. Powerful book. Too often Christians think that we need to say yes to everything in order to be like Jesus, and then we end up ignoring the things that we're really responsible for and end up hurting ourselves and hurting other people around us because we're not taking care of what God gave us to care for, uh, our own realm, and trying to worry about helping, helping everybody else. So if you have a hard time saying no or if you feel guilty when you do, I highly recommend this book. God has given us human beings made in God's image. God has given us human beings real power, real influence, and real responsibility for God's world. And this is God's world. David reminds us in Psalm 21 and verse 4, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants too. Caesar had staked his claim to that little bit of silver. And Jesus said, give it back to him. But ultimately, the silver is God's too. So what do you see when you look at that coin? Can you see the image of God inscribed even the faces of people that you disagree with, people that you dislike, perhaps for good reason? Can you see the image of God in the faces of those that you look down on or in the faces of those you would be tempted to dismiss? Can you see the image of God in every human face? When Ellie Sanazaro was 23, she married Scott, her high school sweetheart. When they were both 24, they were excited to find out that she was pregnant, and they decided to do the early prenatal testing, uh, not because they were worried about any genetic things, but they wanted to find the baby's gender as soon as possible, so they opted in. Ellie found out the results, and she held herself together while she told Scott that they were gonna have a baby girl and then as, as he was holding her, she started crying. And he said, what's wrong? And she said the doctor had called her to tell her that the test had identified a chromosomal disorder. Their daughter could have a whole range of various 
uh, delays, seizures, physical abnormalities. So for the next six months, they were sad and they were confused, but they felt like God was preparing their hearts to be parents to a child with special needs. There were a lot of ups and downs, but they made it through. Their daughter was born and she was beautiful. And just a week in, they did blood work and they found out she did not have any chromosomal disorder. The test was wrong. So they were relieved and in some ways they felt like they, they, uh, they, they were so just grateful and they celebrated. But something was stirring inside Ellie's heart. She really felt like God had prepared them to parent a child with special needs. And their daughter, Rosalie, did not have special needs and she was confused and wondering, well, there was something still stirring. And so a couple months after her daughter was born, she started wondering, can I adopt a child with a chromosomal disorder? And she found an organization um, that focuses on the adoption for babies with Down syndrome. And so she waited a few more months and then she told Scott, God has really been laying on my heart that we ought to adopt a baby with Down syndrome. And he said, you are crazy. We dodged a bullet, what do you mean? And she said, well, will you just promise me that you'll pray about it? And he said, well, how can, what can you say to your spouse when they say that? Okay, fine, I'll pray about it. So Scott went from thinking that she was crazy, but he said he'd pray about it, to thinking, well, maybe God's right. You're right, God did prepare us to do this, but I still don't think it's the right thing for us to do. And then finally, you know what, I think you're right. God, God did prepare us to do this, but I'm just not ready for this. In the meantime, when uh, Rosalie was one, they found out they were pregnant again. She was pregnant again. Um, and this time they had a little girl, Leonie Ruth. Then one December morning in 2018, when Ellie was feeding their two-year-old and their six-month-old, Scott calls her from work and says, I think God's calling us to adopt a Down syndrome child. So 10 months later, in October 2019, they packed up their two daughters, now three and one, and they drove three states away to meet their soon-to-be-adopted son, Finn. He was born early and he was only four pounds. He was in and out of the hospital for five months and several, several times they thought he wouldn't make it. He wouldn't make it through. But he did make it, um, and he became a beautiful part of their family. During their last hospital stay, Ellie felt that God had, had given her an, an idea to write a book. Um, and it was, it's called Image Bearer. It's about every child being made in the image of God, Image Bearer. She published the book in March 2021, during the pandemic. And here are just a few pages from that book. The way you communicate does not change the way you reflect God's image every single day. We can share our thoughts in different ways with a word, nod, a sigh, a point, or a gaze. You bear God's image if you use wheels to travel on sidewalks or carpet, on grass, dirt, or gravel. You're made in God's image if a tube's in your belly or if you munch on peanut butter and jelly, if you have 23 pairs made of your DNA or there's a different amount. Say hooray. You're made in God's image and no one can change it. Nothing will shift, modify, rearrange it. 
Your value comes not from the things that you do. You have worth because God has made and loves you. You can see the names there, uh, Rosalie, Leonie, and Finn. And here are Leonie and Finn in real life. Jesus looks at the coin and says, whose image, whose inscription is this? Rosalie and Finn are image bearers. The person who seems to be making your life miserable right now, guess what? He is an image bearer. The one you don't think will amount to anything, she is an image bearer. The one you don't understand, they are an image bearer. Believe it or not, you are an image bearer. You have real power in your sphere of influence and responsibility to help or to harm. So whose image is on that coin? Caesar's, yes. He too is an image bearer. And Jesus said, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's and to God what belongs to God. Amen.